Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the third part of a series throughout June, marking the early decades of broadcasting here to coincide with the 90th birthday of RTHK. An English language service was set up with the callsign GOW in 1928, becoming ZBW the following year. Chinese language broadcasting began with the callsign ZEK in 1934. After the Japanese military occupation during the Second World War, ZBW and ZEK would merge to become Radio Hong Kong in 1948. In this week's program, we take a look at competition to Radio Hong Kong from Rediffusion, a cable radio station with subscription set up in 1949, with new recruit Ray Cadero later to become the legendary and long-lasting DJ Uncle Ray. I started another musical show called Rumpus Time. And this is another of my creation with live audience. And the young Englishman doing his national service British Army stint in Hong Kong, who keeps winning Uncle Ray's talent contest. There may be trouble ahead, but while there's moonlight and music and love and romance, let's face the music and dance. We follow an outdoor broadcast from 1957, marking the exit of Governor Alexander Grantham. And now the Bougainville is moving very slowly down the harbour. Launches are taking up position. Launches with firecrackers. All the launches wearing bunting, streaming, streamers saying goodbye to Sir Alexander and Lady Grantham. And hear about Lee Im Or, a Hong Kong treasure with his superb ability to be able to tell his own novels on air. Lee Im Or would work for both Rediffusion and later Commercial Radio, which was set up in 1957. Now let's hear from Ray Cadero or Uncle Ray, who in 1949 began his career at Rediffusion. I joined Rediffusion in 1949, knowing nothing about radio. I was interviewed by an American boss, Frank Harris. Are you willing to start at 700? I said, "Wow, 700!" Because I spent four years at the Hong Kong Bank in Central, and after four years, I was getting 217 dollars. Suddenly, I came to this this chap offering me 700, knocked me off completely. But the problem is. I knew nothing about radio, so he said, "You better start as a scriptwriter." And in a very short time, I was writing script for two of the top programs in Rediffusion. One is the Shriro Hit Parade, and Shriro was selling refrigerators. They wanted to advertise on Rediffusion, so there I was. It became extremely popular. The other one was from a record company called Diamond Music Company, and they had a lot of、uh, pop groups and singers and all that. And the the boss was friendly with me. The boss of Diamond Music was friendly with me. I ran the silver, so so I took over Diamond Music show. And then from the hit parade, I started another musical show called Rumpus Time. And this is another of my creation with live audience.、Uh, and of course, the, the the DJ at that time was Ron Ross. I was only the producer, wasn't a DJ. So I put the show together and stumbled onto a group of Filipino boys. They were. They have no uniform. They came in jeans and T-shirts and all that. But they were so good. They were so lively, and they made a hit right away. 
So they were on my show every week. The name is, uh, well, they had no names, but eventually we called them the Fabulous Echoes. A little bit of soap will wash away your lipstick from my face. A little bit of soap will never put, never, never, ever erase. And that's when Diamond Music came in. Diamond Music grabbed them as fabulous echoes. Now, the Shiro Top 10, which was a refrigerator company, yeah. when you did the Top 10 songs, did you then have to advertise a refrigerator? Not really. Just a Shiro hit parade. That, that oh, was the only just, time. Just the name. Yeah, just the name. They sponsored the program. They just wanted their name mentioned. Now, of course, over the years, you would have known a lot of bands. But as you say, this Filipino group, the Fabulous Echoes, it must have been, over the years, did you enjoy the fact that you could see these young people who enjoyed music and then their careers building oh that, that's what made my show rumpus time so so popular because it was a game where where the, the there was a live audience the teenagers just came well, they crowded the studio they, they enjoyed themselves you know because there was a live band you know and we had games during the show it was a, a very hectic the time for me being the producer because Actually, I started from the bottom, you know, and knew nothing about how to produce a good show. But it went on to be the top show in, in Really Fusion. So when, when you say it was a live band and then you had all of these teenagers come in, where was Rediffusion? Oh, Rediffusion was a funny thing. When they first appeared in the market, they were in Taiko Dockyard, a place for ships and all that. And then eventually they pulled out of Taiko Dockyard and they went to they have their own building in Wan Chai called the Rediffusion House. Cute little uh, up-to-date building, and I was really proud of it. So did you have a big studio? It was produced in a live studio, in a big, the biggest studio available. With your studio, describe to me, because the sound, you know, how did it go to air? I mean, was it pre-recorded? Was it live? Oh, oh absolutely live. So how but, was it transmitted? Like nowadays, when you do a live show, you have a, a studio, a recording booth, and a studio, and of course there's a technician uh, in the recording studio. He, he controls all the sound and all that. And I control the studio with my microphone. So at the age of 25 or so, you start your career with Rediffusion in 1949. So Rediffusion was a private commercial station. Correct, yes. Actually, the head office was in London, Rediffusion London. Because then, then they started to, to open a branch here in Hong Kong, and that's how, that's how it started. Fortunately for me, they started in Hong Kong, so that was my first step to broadcasting. That's where I started uh, another live show, Talent Time. Again, it's with teenagers and all that. There was one young singer who you got to know who was doing his military service here. Oh, yeah. Army personnel will take part, they'll sing, but there's, well, there's one person called Terry Parsons. He, he, he wins every week. Every week he joins, he wins. So we have to give him a, a show of, on his own 15 minutes, Terry Parsons sings, to get him away from the, from the crowd so the program can carry on so that other people will join. So that, that, that's how it went. So who was Terry Parsons? He was uh, Matt Monroe. Without a song 
The day would never end Without a song That road would never bend When things go wrong A man ain't got a friend Without a song But he's such a wonderful person with a wonderful voice, a very, very friendly sort of a person. So what would you say is a Matt Munro favourite for you? Oh, I, I can't really answer that question because there's so many. It, it's his style of voice uh, that everybody thought he was uh, the Frank Sinatra of uh, England, you know. The former deputy director of broadcasting, Taikin Man, tells me about radio in the 1950s and Radio Hong Kong broadcaster, Chung Wai Ming. We have Mr. Zhong Weiming, who works in RHK. He also started his career in late 40s and early 50s. Another veteran artist is Uncle Ray. He also started his career, a radio career, in late 40s and early 50s. So late 40s and early 50s, certainly because of the increase in the radio populations, audience populations, there's a huge demand of good radio presenter and radio artists. So with Chung Wai Ming, what kind of style is he at the end of the 1940s? He mainly he's an announcer, and also a drama artist. Yeah, and uh, he because he's a very good voice, and uh, you know in in Cantonese, we mainly broadcast in Cantonese. Cantonese is we need to have a very good pronunciation. One of his success is a what we call is a one man drama show. He performed all the roles, a, a child, as a lady, as a parent, as, as an old guy, you know, Zhong Wai Ming as, the, as a child, Zhong Wai Ming as a lady, Zhong Wai Ming as an old elderly people. <laughs> so, for example, one of the most favorite uh, characters that uh, Mr. Zhong performed is the Kung Fu star, Wang Fei Hong. All the sound effects were produced at location. When we make the recording, they're using a lot of different techniques to create a sound. Actually, in fifty, we open up a lot of different dialects, such as uh, Chiu Chao, Fukin, uh, Mandarin, including Cantonese, at least four dialects. Sometimes maybe even some of some minor surface for some other dialects. But So this is really to cater to the refugees coming in? Yeah, yeah, those, those are very important, you know, because uh, most of them coming from the north, they, they may not know all those local Cantonese dialect, yeah. Because, mm, I mean, what, what was Li Ka-shing? <laughs> so he, he's from Chujiao. <laughs> and also at that time, there, we also had some programs in Shanghainese, yeah, so, so people from Shanghai. Uh, don't quite, quite demanding to, to... So you would have had to yeah. have kind of program heads, in a sense, for these different dialects. Yeah, and... but, but, you know, radio, we need to respond to the mm. community, the needs of the communities. That's why we, we, we launched all those uh, new services, yeah. On February the 6th, 1956, British composer Benjamin Britten and English tenor Peter Pears performed a recital at a Radio Hong Kong studio. We are starting our recital with two songs by Joseph Haydn. They are two of the English canzonets which Haydn wrote after one of his visits to London. He, in fact, wrote two sets of six, and the words uh, are by a friend of his, uh, Anne Hunter. The first is called The Sailor's Song. <laughs> <laughs> 
bending master seaman further ending sail. And fearless of the rushing blast, he careless whistles to the gale. Rattling ropes and rolling seas. Hurly burly, hurly burly. Him displeased, can him displeased. Hurly burly, hurly burly, hurly burly, hurly burly. Oh, no Can him displeased, can him displeased, can him Of course, not all broadcasting was confined to the studio. There is, of course, the outdoor broadcast, where your sound and equipment needs to be protected from the elements. In 1957, the then-governor, Sir Alexander Grantham, left Hong Kong after being here for ten years. A team of reporters, including the director of broadcasting, Donald Brooks, stationed themselves on Queen's Pier, on top of the new Star Ferry and on a launch, in order to give listeners the best possible viewpoints on the exit of the Granthams. The recording is well over an hour. Here's a few minutes to give you a taste. This is Radio Hong Kong. Today, the 31st of December, His Excellency the Governor and Lady Grantham are leaving Hong Kong. In a few moments, they're due to arrive at Queen's Pier, where they'll say goodbye to their many friends who are assembled there. We're taking you over now to Queen's Pier for a description of the scene, so over first to Tim Brinton. Good morning to you from Queen's Pier. I'm standing on our broadcasting van on the side facing the reclamation, the part which is normally used as a car park. But today, drawn up in two lines, is a multiple guard of honour composed of the Royal Navy, the 1st Battalion, the Green Howards for the Army, and the Royal Air Force. Behind them, the bands of the Royal Marines and the Regimental Band of the Green Howards, waiting to do honour to His Excellency Sir Alexander Grantham and Lady Grantham as they depart on their retirement. Behind me, on the other side of the pier, about 400 yards out, is the ship that Sir Alexander and Lady Grantham will be leaving on. So, first of all, let's go down and hear from John Wallace at Queen's Pier. Over now to John Wallace. And here I'm standing about eight paces from the top of the steps leading down to the Lady Maureen, which is lying alongside. I can reach out over the railing of Queen's Pier if I wished and touch the superstructure of the Lady Maureen, which is bobbing gently here at the foot of these steps, bunting, whipping in frenzied dance as this cold wind blows across the harbour. The water at the bottom of the steps, at the foot of the steps, splashing up, and I'll hold the microphone just away from me for just one moment, and you can possibly hear the extent to which the wind is blowing underneath as we wait for His Excellency to arrive. Well, there then, I think, you have some idea of the conditions here at Queen's Pier. As the Lady Maureen leaves here and goes out, it'll be observed at close quarters by Ted Thomas, who is right at the far end of the Star Ferry Pier. And so, for what he can see from his point, over now to Ted Thomas. Greetings from the roof of the new Star Ferry Pier. I am sitting up on the top of the eastern arm of the 
twin arms of this building, and right in front of me, across the harbour, the Kowloon docks. And between these docks and here lies the Bougainville. But to my right, the Royal Naval Dockyard with HMS Newcastle, the cruiser, alongside flying her colourful ensign, jack and admiral's flag at the masthead. And nearer still, still within the precincts of the dockyard, the Fleet Auxiliary Gold Ranger. The wind here is really getting up all the time while we're talking to you. Sir Alexander moves on now to the Green Hearts Guard. Guard Commander goes down with him. For a description of a voyage from Queen's Pier out to the Bougainville, over to the Star Ferry to Ted Thomas. Um. Through binoculars here, I can see the handkerchiefs waving and the ropes have dropped into the water now. Ropes which secured the launch Lady Maureen to Queen's Pier, symbolically casting off all ties of a long and successful association with Hong Kong. The Hong Kong which has grown and flourished under His Excellency's leadership and guidance. Over now to Donald Brooks. And I'm on the DCNI launch number three. We are just immediately astern of the Lady Maureen now, about 100 yards astern. She's not moored to the pontoon yet. The ropes are just being thrown across. Uh, next to us are the boats of the escort lining up, police launch number 11, police launch number three. They appear to be having a little trouble in getting the Lady Maureen right alongside the pontoon because the sea is indeed very choppy here. The Lady Maureen will form part of the escort as the Bougainville move slowly down the harbour. The escort, which is composed of police launches, marine launches, launches of the Department of Commerce and Industry, bringing up the rear is a police launch with firecrackers. Further on down the harbour is the fire float, Sir Alexander Grantham. And now we're nearly at Limewood Pass now. The escort has broken off. The Hong Kong Facilio escort has broken off, and even they are firing crackers. They've got crackers from the masts, I think, of each of the ships, certainly the leading ships. They're now coming down beside us very closely, in perfect formation. They broke off their V, did a turn right round in a very tight circle, and are now in perfect formation. Yes, there's a crackers on the mast of the uh, ship astern, and now the first one, P3513, is passing us. The crew waving, standing on the deck. P3510 is just shooting past us. They also have crackers on their mast. And now it only remains for us to say a very last sad farewell to a man who has not only been Hong Kong's governor for the past ten years, but undoubtedly is the best friend that Hong Kong has ever had. And to him and Lady Grantham, we wish bon voyage and the very happiest of retirements. I return you now to the studio. The commentators, during His Excellency the Governor's departure, were John Wallace and Tim Brenton at Queen's Pier, Ted Thomas on the roof of the new Star Ferry, and Donald Brooks in the launch.
I'm uh, Oliver Chow. I'm a music historian. You had the opportunity to meet and interview Mr. Li Ngor three years ago, and uh, he was already at that point about 93, 94. He was 93 when I met him、uh, three years ago. So I went to his place. Unfortunately, he was quite sick and、uh, he was in bed. However, I did get to talk to him for about 15 minutes or so. His voice surprisingly hasn't changed much. Since he made a big name for himself in the late forties, in the in the fifties, not just in Hong Kong but the entire Pearl River Delta, his voice was still there. Now, with the war, of course, that that's a, quite a tragic personal story. Li Ngo was born in Guangzhou in 1922. He came to Hong Kong with his single mother when he was five, and so he was brought up in Hong Kong basically. And in the thirties, he was so smart that he got. Admitted to Wayan College, one of the top schools in Hong Kong at that time, and his English was very good. And he fell with, in love with the schoolgirl next door. And at that time, because his mom died when he was fourteen, so he was basically basically all by himself. And that's where his name came from, Lee Ngo, Ngo meaning myself, Lee and myself, because that's all he had. He had no parents, no siblings. He was all by himself at the age of fourteen. He picked up his, that name Leigh Ngo at that time. So the puppy love went on, but that was、uh, very much opposed by the the girl's family, of course. But they nevertheless got married, and they had a young boy. Unfortunately, due to the war, the young couple went through a lot, a lot of hard time. The hardest of all, of course, is when food was so short in Hong Kong that. The young wife had to go to Guangzhou to 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 work and look for food there. So for a few years' time, the young wife would send money back to Hong Kong to Li Ngo to go on. But for some time later, the the money did not come anymore. So Li Ngo decided to go to Guangzhou to look for his wife. So it was a great tragic scene when the wife came to meet him at a hotel. When Li Ngo noticed the wife had already been remarried, so Li Ngo. Took that very graciously, and、uh, they they bid farewell at the Guangzhou Hotel, and then at that time, Ling Ao in Guangzhou made a big name for himself when he auditioned for the Guangzhou Radio, and then he invented what made him a great legacy in Hong Kong's radio history, and that is his invention of the so-called Tin Hong Xiu Xu novel on air. So he would be a storyteller. He was a storyteller. The way he did it. Was、uh, to tell story on air, live, without having a script in his hand. He was he would just do it, and then he would personify different characters in his own voice, different pitches, different tempo, different rhythms, and all that. He could do it as many as eight in one story, and all those stories were so popular that the entire Guangzhou people would tune in during his time. And all those stories, even though he made it up and he told the story. Instantly, without a script, those stories were put on the big screen, and there were over twenty of them. So Lei Ngo wasn't just a radio person; he was also a movie person because his novels on air were so popular that people were eager to watch it on the big screen, and that's how he got himself very, very famous in Hong Kong in the in, in the early fifties. Ting Yao Han, I am Mugi. 爱河就怨恨海啊，情海都是泛区
，莫道情悲金坚，金坚都会被火融化去。It's a fact that Hong Kong did not have a television service until 1957. So in other words, before television came to the household in 1957, Lei Ngo was along with other. Movie makers, they were enjoying a monopoly in in Hong Kong. So those were really the golden days. Isn't that an amazing talent, though, to be able to, without notes, tell a story, embody these different characters and different voices on radio? It must have been also fascinating for people because you've only got, you know, you've got radio,、uh, you've got Rediffusion Radio starting in 1949. In the 50s, he'd also work for Radio Villa Verde in Macau. So this is for many people. This storytelling idea would have been a totally new genre to be able to just sit in their living room or sit、uh, in the tea shop. And listen to him,、uh, and and it was it must have been a wonderful escapism. Absolutely, there was one anecdote that I would like to share with you. I, I read all his autobiographies. There were five of them. There was one novels of his that got so popular that there were armors at that time in Hong Kong. You know, the armors were looking after the young masters and and all that. There was so those are the traditional Chinese armors. Yes, there was one armor that was so involved or indulged in listening to the radio. Uh, Lee Ngo's story that she spoon-fed the food to the nostrils of the young master. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the family complained, and it's all because of Lee Ngo. He, you know, his story was so too, too interesting. <laughs> So very absorbing, and you say one of these stories was a haunted house. Twenty of them would make it to the big screen. But、uh, what would, what sort of subjects did he enjoy telling? Well, basically, he was telling his own life. He went through a lot. Uh, since the day he left Guangzhou at very young age, and then he was in Hong Kong losing his mom, and then his marriage. He went through the Japanese occupation period, but just because of his memory and then all his, you know, very sharp observations of things, that he would be able to narrate on radio in such flair and in such natural flow, that really captivated a lot of audience in the fifties. And, and and the sixties, and it was his popularity that got George Ho, the founder of commercial radio, came to him and asked him to join the new venture of founding the commercial radio in 1959. So Li Ngo was actually one of the founders of、uh, the commercial radio. Not not only that. After he joined Commercial Radio、uh, in 1959, actually he worked through he, he worked there until he retired in 1975. During his time in Commercial Radio,、uh, aside from producing novels on air, he was also involved in interviewing young broadcasters. Actually, Li Ngo's presence is conspicuous. If you walk into the Commercial Radio building this day, the most iconic calligraphy. You know of、uh, Mr. George Ho's famous lines there. You know, speaking the truth with discretion. My loose translation. The person who put it into great calligraphy there is none other than Li Ngo. What a talented man! Well, we have to remember Li Ngo and George Ho. They were the founders of a commercial radio, and in fact. Of the five autobiography copies that、uh, Li Ngo composed, the first one was published in 2003, and the preface was written by Mr. George Ho. 
My thanks to Uncle Ray, Tykin Man and Oliver Chow. In the next two programmes, I'll be looking at the 1960s, a full and tumultuous decade politically, which also produced some wonderful local music. Next week, I'll be looking at the building of Shekpik Reservoir. That's a bulldozer. A giant piece of earth-moving machinery capable of moving earth in 50-ton bites. And the effects of Typhoon Wanda in 1962. I'm just standing here at the moment and the supper for the victims of Typhoon Wanda has just arrived. There's an enormous tub full of rice. There's also a tub full, which looks a very good, vegetable stew and being curd. Everybody is now queuing up and they're being given extremely big helpings. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.